This podcast is going to be of interest to anybody with diabetes and we're exploring type 1 and type 2 diabetes. We're also exploring the implications it has on lung function and the connection to, for example, respiratory conditions, poor sleep, what's happening when blood sugar gets too high, and what can we do in terms of breathing exercises to help improve diabetic control. So I won't be doing much talking with this one. This one is all in the hands of Nick Keats. So there's, there's absolutely no pressure on Nick at this moment. Nick is an oxygen advantage instructor and he's also has type one diabetes since you were 12 years of age. And I would like you to, Nick, just to give a little bit of background, how you came across breathing techniques that you do. You then set up the breathingdiabetic.com and you're a PhD trained scientist. So you know something about research. And I think it's very interesting that you brought this together. So welcome, Nick. Yeah, thanks a lot, Patrick. Yeah, so excited to be on the show. And um, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I've actually been diabetic since I was 11. Um, I'm 33 now, so about 22 years with type 1 diabetes. And I got into the breathing stuff. I kind of um, just was a, a normal kid, you know, and I, I had diabetes, but I did whatever I wanted throughout most of my life until I got into college. I read one book that got me realizing like, hey, the way I eat and exercise and move can have really dramatic impacts on my blood sugars. So I started getting into self, uh, self-improvement in the, like with nutrition and exercise. And then of course, like most people, I found Wim Hof at some point and, you know, started trying some of the big breathing and noticed some, some impacts in my energy, but, um, you know, felt good and all these things. But over time, I just, I never really felt, uh, fully, I felt like I, I had more I could be doing to, to improve my diabetes management and my energy levels because I was finding huge afternoon crashes and things like that. And eventually, I heard of, of you on, um, on Bulletproof Radio, I believe it was. With Dave Aspies, you had, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Dave Aspies podcast. And, and what, like you mentioned, I have a background in science. What really got me excited was hearing you explain the science of how optimal breathing works, not talking about any particular technique, more of a let's change our breathing 24 seven. And that all clicked with me. And you mentioned mouth tape. So I went out uh, that night, I stopped, I was driving. So I stopped at Walgreens, I picked up some paper tape and taped my mouth. And it was the best night's sleep I'd had since I could remember. And uh, the next day it happened again. And I think the next day it happened again. Eventually I was emailing my wife at work, like, this is crazy. It's so simple, but yet it's having these huge improvements to my energy. And so I then started incorporating some of the walking breath holds and especially slow breathing. So I started every morning with 10 to 15 minutes of slow breathing, something I still do to this day. And I started after about two or three months, I noticed improvements in my blood sugar management. And I was like, this is really odd that something as simple as just breathing is making my blood sugars more stable. Now there's always confounding factors. It's not a controlled trial or anything, but I knew in my, I could feel it. I was like, this is, this is definitely something different. And so with a background in, in science, even though I'm not a respiratory physiologist, I'm an atmospheric scientist, I decided I wanted to understand what's going on. So I started reading papers. I flew out to Portland. I'm, I'm in Florida, but I flew out to Portland to train with you because I just wanted to learn more about the science of what's going on. And I would say really there was a paper in 2017 by Bernardi and it was published in Nature Communications. So one of the world's most prestigious academic journals. And it ended, the abstract ended with slow breathing could be a simple beneficial intervention in diabetes. 
And I thought, this is crazy. It's in nature. They're talking about slow breathing for diabetes. I'm not, I'm not losing my mind. This is real stuff. You know, it's, it seems so simple. So that's kind of led me on a journey now to understand how does breathing impact diabetes? And then because it's so unknown, I, I created the breathing diabetic and it's just free resources, information for people who, who are interested in this, in breathing. It's not going to, fix everything but it's so simple and these simple principles can really help with mm. at least with stress with uh proper tissue oxygenation a lot of things that diabetics suffer from slow breathing can help at least push it in the right direction sure. and yeah. for certain people like myself you know it can really help with blood sugar management over time yeah. so yeah. that's kind of how i how i got into this and now that's pretty much you know, I work a full-time job and do a normal day job type thing, but every free minute I get, I'm reading about breathing and trying to apply it in my own life and then get the information out, whether it be on the so, website or wherever. So Nick, in terms of you were having afternoon crashes, like what, what is an afternoon crash? Um, how did it feel? Did you have to take a nap? Did it really impact in terms of your productivity or you, did you just feel that you weren't just as focused as what you normally would be? And were you a mouth breather, for example? How was your breathing before you started coming across this? Because I suppose people might think that their breathing is good anyway, and everybody seems to think that they have good breathing. Um, how were you breathing? Or describe the afternoon crash, and how was your breathing at that time? Yeah, so the afternoon crash, when I had work, it was just, I felt drained, but I, I was at work. So, you know, you, you push through and you just do what you gotta do. But what was interesting is my wife is a yoga teacher and she was teaching an afternoon class. So I would get off of work and I had about 45 minutes to an hour before I'd go to the class and I would go home and I would just immediately take a nap. Like I would just walk in the door, sit on the couch and try to go to sleep for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And this was a few days a week when I would take the class, but it, I felt like that almost every day, which is, it was really odd, but it was so I become a chronic mouth breather um, and whether or not that's the only thing, you know, there's always, again, lots of things, but I, I know I had become a chronic mouth breather. I thought the answer to everything was to take a big breath and just relax. And, and, and so I definitely become a chronic mouth breather and definitely at night. Um, I, I wasn't, I didn't realize it at the time. You don't know until you get to, you experience the difference, but I felt like I was sleeping fine. But then the first time I taped my mouth, I, I woke up so much more refreshed. So I know I wasn't sleeping as well. So I know I was mouth breathing at night because the tape fixed it. You know, I, I slept much better and I was definitely a mouth breather during the day and I was doing it on purpose. I really thought that was the answer was to take big breaths. And so the, the afternoon crashes were pretty much daily, you know, and it, it wasn't, I eat pretty well. So it wasn't like a huge high carb, you know, a lot of times they say if you eat a really high carbohydrate lunch, that can also lead to a blood sugar spike, which leads to a crash. But I mainly just eat a salad um, with some oil. So I'm not really eating too much sugar at lunchtime. So it was really just a, an inner metabolism problem or some sort of energy uh, deficiency that I was uh, encountering it mouth breathing seemed to be a big part of it for me at least that it, it changed it, it added a lot so just in terms of the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes so type 1 is something that typically younger kids are you're diagnosed and it's not quite known what's the trigger um, it could be a viral infection or something can you just explain a little bit in layman's terms between 
type one whereby, for example, the pancreas isn't producing sufficient insulin versus type two diabetics. And then we will talk a little bit about the complications of it. Um, so the differences between both type one and type two and you know, which one is more common, which one it, it might somebody be more likely to get in adulthood versus childhood, et cetera. Yeah. So in general, yeah, type one is more in adolescence and in younger people, like how I got it when I was 11. Some people get it much earlier. Some people do get late onset type one diabetes. So there's a mix, but for the most part, it's predominantly in children. And that's when your body uh, actually destroys the insulin producing cells in your pancreas, your beta cells. So it's an autoimmune disease where your own immune system is attacking these cells and, and you completely lose all um, insulin production. So there's, there's no hope uh, at that point for using diet or anything to reverse it. You're kind of at a point where you're not making insulin and you have to go to either shots or an insulin pump and then you start checking your blood sugar as regularly as you can or you wear a continuous glucose monitor. There's a lot of different ways of, of managing it, but um, type two diabetes is, has kind of a host of different things going on. Um, so it's, it's metabolically driven mostly. There's, um, there's books, there's all sorts of things written on it. It's the more common form. So I think upwards of like 90% of diet, when you hear diabetes, 90% of those are more is usually type two diabetes. And that's, that's associated with insufficient insulin production and insulin resistance. So your body had, you, you, you weren't uh, utilizing the insulin you were producing well enough. You, were, you had insulin resistance, which was causing higher blood glucose, which was triggering your pancreas to produce more and more insulin until it kind of like taxes out, um, to put it in kind of layman terms, just it gets, it gets overly worked and you get to a point where you're not creating enough insulin and you're not utilizing it enough. And so with type two diabetes, a lot of things can help. Um, so exercise, nutrition, all these things can really benefit because you do still have the ability to produce insulin. So if you can regain your insulin sensitivity and things like that, there's ways to actually manage it. Um, some people can do it without any kind of medications. Other people take drugs like metformin or other um, things to help, or eventually you might need insulin as a type two diabetic, but the, the way to get there is much different. Whereas type one's autoimmune type two, type two is more metabolic, um, lifestyle, genetics, lifestyle, gen yeah. yeah, genetics plays a huge role in all of them. Um, but the, the outcome. So once you get past type one or type two, because it's all driven by glucose, uh, irregulation. So you have highs and lows and your blood sugars are fluctuating around. And what's Some so bad the about that? So when blood sugar levels are, is going high, the obviously, so insulin, as I can remember it is, it's a little bit like carbon dioxide in terms of oxygen is released from hemoglobin in, in the presence of carbon dioxide. That's the Bohr effect. So insulin is what allows the, the cells to metabolize the glucose. Is that correct? Yes. And right. if you're not producing, so say with type one diabetes, that the pancreas isn't producing insulin or not producing sufficient insulin, blood sugar levels are, are going to go high in the blood because the, the cells aren't able to use that, that glucose. Um, and with type two diabetes, the cells aren't able to use that glucose and blood sugar levels are going high. 
And then the problem associated with high blood sugar levels, what problems are those? Oh, that's where basically all the complications of diabetes come in. You get a lot of oxidative stress. Um, you get the problems with blood flow. That's why you get issues with eyes, with diabetics and with feet. You hear a lot of things about diabetic shoes and things like that. It leads to autonomic dysfunction. So you get, um, you get kind of swinged into a more sympathetic state because- so you go into a stress mode. Yeah, so, more of a stress mode. Yeah. So as glucose is increasing, the blood vessels, both the small blood vessels and the larger blood vessels are essentially getting clogged with, with glucose. Yeah, you could think of it like that, yeah, because it's, it's leading to all of this inflammation and damage to the blood cells and to the, um, and to the arteries and veins that eventually, yeah, it's like arterial function deteriorate, deteriorates pretty quickly with uh, sustained high blood sugars or over time. That's one of the big complications. And how so, would the person feel? Oh, it's awful. <laughs> I mean, I know from, you know, I, I so I still, I, I still get highs. I still get lows. Um, type one diabetes is a never ending journey of learning and, and, and being defeated on a daily basis when you think you've had it figured out. But the feeling of having sustained high blood sugar is one of the worst um, for me. So I, I mean, some people feel a little differently. So it's like, if you look at the symptoms on, you know, WebMD or, or Mayo mm. Clinic, you'll see that like high and blood, high and low blood sugar have similar symptoms because different people feel them a little differently. But most people for high blood sugars, it drains you, it gives you, you just feel exhausted. Like you just want to go to sleep. You want to lie down. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to think. And so if that's sustained over weeks, months, years, um, it can definitely lead. I've seen uh, graphs showing that brain size decreases uh, pretty significantly with time when in diabetes just because of sustained um, glucose. Another really interesting aspect of high blood sugar is that it, it increases the affinity of oxygen to the hemoglobin. So for the, for the breathing nerds, it's a left shift in the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. But basically what it does is it holds on to oxygen more readily and it also binds nitric oxide in a form that's not um, bioavailable. So it's reducing the ability of nitric oxide to improve blood flow and it's also reducing the amount of oxygen that's getting released to the tissue. So, so this then, sorry to cut across you. Yeah. So this is what then is causing hypoxia and hy because of course, if you've got a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, if the hemoglobin is not releasing oxygen so readily and if blood vessels are constricting, there's not going to be enough oxygen getting to the tissues and organs. And the, what are the implications of that? And this might tie in with where breathing can help because, you know, so first of all, the implications of hypoxia and because I think there's a confusing thing. We do some breathing exercises which deliberately create intermittent hypoxia. And you will think, well, if hypoxia is bad, why do breath holding? And we do know that breath holding can lower blood sugar levels, more beneficial if your blood sugar levels are high and you want to bring them down pretty quickly. Um, so just a little bit about that, about the hypoxia. Yeah, so, the, so there's a few aspects you just hit on both is that you get the, the left shift. So you're, you're, the oxygen is holding on to the hemoglobin a lot more. The affinity is much stronger, so you're not getting the release into the tissues. Just the, um, the added inflammation and things like that are reducing ox oxygen delivery, but also the blood flow aspect. So when we talk about oxygenation of the tissues, 
it requires oxygen and blood flow. So the more blood flow, the more oxygen. And, and there's actually a really nice paper showing this in 2015, I think in, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences showing that nitric oxide is a huge regulator of blood flow. And, and that's really a, a key mechanism for oxygenating the tissue. So in diabetes, you're, you're getting rid of those two factors. You're reducing blood flow and you're holding on to oxygen. And so this is creating um, there's other factors as well, but those are the, I think, the two big ones creating tissue hypoxia. And then um, there's uh, a paper, I think, in 2017 showing that they basically kind of make, brought this full circle saying that the, the uh, tissue hypoxia is leading to a kind of constant state of sympathetic, of stress, of fight or flight, which is then going to um, mess with your chemosensitivity which is then going to exacerbate the sympathetic response now because your chemosensitivity is wrong, you're gonna be breathing heavy, more heavily, which is then in turn gonna just go right back to more dysfunction of, of oxygenation because now you're gonna reduce carbon dioxide, you're not gonna be getting as much um, blood flow. So it's this kind of vicious cycle in diabetes. You almost wonder if it's trying to protect you from something because they all combine in the negative way. It's like what what is the what could be going on here? Because it just seems so um, so bad when you start looking at how these these feedback loops are working in a in a negative way. Yeah, but, and I think so, it's like it's no, go ahead. No, quite no. a number of different conditions that there is a negative feedback loop. There, anxiety is one. Mm -hmm. Asthma is another. Uh, high loop gain and sleep apnea is another one. Um, so in terms of then the stress response, people who are, so di people with diabetes have to be very careful that they're not pushing themselves to the point of stress. And maybe that's one reason where slow breathing is beneficial and better night's sleep, because you can help achieve a balance in, you know, you can help to dampen or reduce stress and you can help to bring the body into relaxation, increase parasympathetic tone, um, and there has been studies on this going back 20 years, isn't there, with Barnardi? It's going mm -hmm. back to 2000. Yeah, and that's, that's right. So I think when I, on my website and things, when I talk to other diabetics, I usually say start with slow breathing and mm -hmm. if, you, if you feel comfortable with the mouth tape, because those are going to be the two big resets. With, so diabetics have much, like if you just look at a resting state of a diabetic versus a healthy control uh, their heart rate variability is usually much lower, so indicating they're more in a sympathetic state. Their baroreflex sensitivity is usually lower from baseline. And so if you look at their overnight values of, of how, they're, how they're shifting from a sympathetic during the day to a more parasympathetic dominant at night, it doesn't, the, the shift isn't as great as it, you see in normal healthy individuals. So diabetes does a lot of things that, and it just makes sense, right? We're under this stress of fluctuating blood sugars, all these issues. And it just stresses you out on top of all of the emotional things. So I think, you know, diabetics are like two to three times more likely to get depression. We have a pretty high incidence of anxiety um, disorder. And I think a, a, a ridiculous percentage of us have just anxiety symptoms when you, when you go in and do these questionnaires. So there's a lot of things leading to it where the relaxation, um, slow breathing, activating the uh, the increasing your vagal tone, so to speak, or, you know, increasing the parasympathetic, the calming branch of the nervous system can be super beneficial just to help reset things, help balance you out and whether your blood sugar. So low blood sugars also can do this. So low blood sugars can trigger a sympathetic response. High blood sugars can do it through the tissue hypoxia feedback loop. Mm. And so 
really you just want to balance your blood sugars the best you can, but helping slow breathing in particular has a whole host of benefits that can at least help offset some of those side effects of diabetes, help bring heart rate variability back to normal levels, help bring baroreflex sensitivity back to normal levels. For me, help me actually shift into a more parasympathetic state at night and sleep deeper, which is then going to downstream give you more energy for managing your blood sugars, for dealing with some of these issues. So um, slow breathing with its ability to put you into that rest and digest state is one of the, I think the the most effective things diabetes diabetics can do. But then if you're interested, they have the breath hold side of it that you kind of started touching on uh, has, has other things that could be beneficial, but you have to balance it with the stress response. So, okay. So what we're saying is that in terms of the body is already with the diabetic body is, is under stress because of the condition. And there's a number of aspects in terms of breathing exercises. So breathing slow is slowing down the respiratory rate to six breaths per minute, but in and out through the nose, ideally not breathing through the mouth and breathing low at the same time. And when you mentioned that helps to strengthen the baroreflex, these are the pressure receptors that are inside the major blood vessels, which are constantly monitoring your blood pressure. And it's a very important indicator of the functioning of your, your nervous system. And the other aspect though is breathe light. Does that have a role? Because you mentioned that people with diabetes often get breathless or they have an increased chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. And this in turn will translate into exercise intolerance. So if they go for a walk, they'll probably find themselves that they're going to be breathing a lot harder. So, you know, it really probably goes all together. When you're doing breathing exercises, do you, do you ever focus on breathing light that you're really breathing less air to feel air hunger because that can stimulate the vagus nerve? Or do you focus on the slow breathing down to six breaths per minute or breathing low? What would be your typical kind of, what, if you were to say to somebody that's listening with diabetes, what should they focus on in terms of a description of the exercise? Yeah, so I always say the first starting point is the slow aspect. Now, of course, you can't ignore the chemistry. So you don't want to just throw it out. But as like the very general, like, here's the the lowest hanging fruit is to just try some slow breathing, focus on using in and out through the nose and focus on just slowing it down to around six breaths per minute. And that's also when you look at the science, like the papers I found those that's the most commonly used method. So if we want to have something we know is backed by uh, science specifically for diabetes, then we know that just slowing down the respiratory rate to around six breaths per minute. And that can fluctuate based on your comfort level. You may, you might need to start a little higher or you might even find that you need it lower. Um, some people are, are much more comfortable around four, even lower, um, or in that, in that range of four to six is usually about uh, typical, I think. But so that's the starting point. You're saying if people find, if people are too breathless, they may not be able to breathe in for five seconds and out for five seconds. So should they start maybe breathing in for three seconds and breathing out for three seconds? Yep. And they're slowing that down. So that's what a breath every six, a breath every six seconds. So it's 10 breaths per minute, which is probably, it would be interesting to see what is the, the respiratory rate in diabetes? Is it above 14, 15 breaths per minute in the adult population? Could it be as high as 20 breaths per minute? And this may be tying in then as well, but you know, you said that people with diabetes can suffer from anxiety. 
of course the condition is going to bring on anxiety especially if there's unknowns but the fact that if your breathing is labored and upper chest the respiratory physiology is off and that's going to bring on anxiety and then we know that people with diabetes don't have good sleep um, or at least there's an increased risk of sleep disorder breathing you know with diabetes itself mm -hmm. and how long would you practice your breathing exercises for in the morning so just to let people know nick i'm based i'm in ireland and it's 10 a.m in the morning we started about a half an hour ago nick is in florida so i think it was 4 30 it's time was it mm -hmm. so you can see how alive and cheery he is at 4 30 in the morning having a podcast about scientific information um so so when you normally get up quite early how long would you spend on your breathing exercises and what sort of routine would you do in other words what i'm trying to do is get inside your head because you're the you're the person who knows this really well and what has worked the best and also tell us what's happened to your insulin has it changed has it stayed the same as your you know is there any changes there so your routine and the benefits that you've got from it yeah definitely so my routine has kind of shifted here and there but it, i'm i'm always a, the only non-negotiable is at least 15 minutes in the morning of slow breathing I use an app actually. I, I like to be guided to the pace. Um, but so talking about the chemo sensitivity a little bit, I do, once I get comfortable and I'm just breathing and it feels natural, I, I do start to reduce the volume of my breath a little bit so that I get a little bit of air hunger. Um, but that's never the focus. It's kind of how I feel. And then once, but I, I make sure I do the, the rate, the slow breathing for 15 minutes is kind of a non-negotiable um, I used to do a really strict breath hold practice after that. So I would go out and do at least five sets of walking breath holds. Now I still use walking breath holds, but I incorporate them throughout the day kind of for just my own time. Um, I do get up early and I, and I like to work on things I'm really interested in with, with breathing specifically. And so um, I found ways to balance those two where I can take a little mini breaks where I do walking breath holds um, throughout the day rather than making them all in one one sitting, so to speak. Um, I also do slow breathing just a couple minutes after lunch. So I've read a few papers showing that slow breathing, a diaphragmatic breathing can reduce blood sugar spikes associated with meals. And one of the ones that I get the biggest spike with is lunch. And I don't really know why I don't eat a ton of carbohydrates. I think it's just something with my metabolism, my diurnal cycle. So I've, I've incorporated right after lunch, I do about anywhere from two to five minutes of just slow breathing. Um, sometimes I practice alternate nostril breathing. Um, I'm always trying new things just to, <laughs> as like you, I love this, I love this stuff. So it's really interesting to learn all these different ways of using it. But I do about two to five minutes of slow breathing after lunch and then before bedtime, that's been a, a, a huge one for me is doing around maybe 10 minutes. This one, I don't set a timer or anything. I just, um, I go outside so that I'm uh, just, out and outside if it's not raining and I uh, do a, at least about 10 minutes of slow breathing then before bed just to kind of get me into that parasympathetic uh, state. And so you do the I, slow breathing sitting down obviously before sleep. Uh, actually I lay down. You lie down. Uh, some, okay. Yeah I do lie down outside um, but that's only sometimes I don't it just depends on if it's raining or not to be mm -hmm. honest but um, but that's that's somewhat newer. So that's only in the past probably like six or seven months I've been doing that. But since for at least three years now, every day I do, I do slow breathing in the morning um, and some sort of light breath holds throughout the day. 
Um, and with my diabetes management, um, with things like insulin. So right when I first started the Oxygen Advantage, like um, my insulin dropped, I would say around 10 to 20%. I don't have exact numbers. My hemoglobin A1C, which is kind of a, a marker of long-term blood sugar, it dropped pretty significantly. Um, and so I've seen big drops. Now it's kind of, I found a balance now where I'm, I've, I've kind of found my sweet spot, so to speak. It was kind of like it, it went down way because I, you know, I was changing everything about how I was breathing and that was changing so much about my metabolism. But then it's come back up to like a, a what I'm very happy with, where I feel the, the best energy levels I've ever had still to this day. I still get anxiety. I still have nights where I don't sleep well. You know, there's still things that real life comes into play, but yeah. it's it's night and day difference for how much it's helped with kind of just stabilizing everything throughout the day with, and, and especially my blood sugars and, and my need for insulin. I'm no longer, so this was a personal choice, but I'm no longer on an insulin pump. I just take shots. Um, I've really simplified my life a lot in that way. And I feel that just the, it's given me that kind of mental uh, clarity to say, okay, I know, I know I'm in control of what I'm doing uh, with my body. And so it's kind of helped me to find what works for me and find the way that it works best with my blood sugar. So yeah, it's been, it's been really nice. And, and I really, uh, I can't go a day without, <laughs> without at least 10 or 15 minutes of slow breathing, just cause I feel like it kind of resets everything for me. Yeah. And there's plenty of other benefits as well. And, um, in terms of, so when you started off doing the breathing exercises, we, we were always, for 20 years, we've been very cagey about asking somebody with diabetes to do any breath toting. And it was because the blood sugar levels could just drop too quickly and they go hypoglycemic. And it was always an aspect. So when you started, started off, you started off with slow breathing, but did you bring in some breath toning as well? And were you monitoring your blood sugar levels more frequently? And what sort of drops did you see? Did you see any kind of things that we, we really need to be keeping an eye on here? That, you know, because of course we want to get benefits, but we also want to avoid risk. Yeah, so um, with type 1 diabetes, it's so particular to what time of day, what insulin you've taken, because you're basically at a state where if I just took insulin, it wouldn't matter what exercise I did, my blood sugar is going to drop. Um, if I haven't taken insulin in a really long time, I can help bring it down a little bit maybe with, with the breath holds, but it, it's really particular to the time with food and insulin. So what I did was most cautiously make sure I did it at times a day that worked well with my eating. So it was either first thing in the morning before I'd eaten or taken any insulin like any extra insulin from what I just my basal rate or uh, in the afternoons after lunch, a few hours after lunch were kind of the, the short acting insulin had wearing off and I'm just kind of back at my basal state. And that kind of gives me a baseline where I know what my blood sugar is when I'm going out to do any breath holds. And then um, can, if I feel bad, I'll check it or I'll stop. Um, I'm very lucky in that I'm very sensitive to low blood sugar. So if I get low, I feel it immediately and that's not the case for everyone. So that's why it's, it can be very dangerous because if you don't feel hypoglycemia that well, if you're not that sensitive to it, you could drop quickly and not notice it. And then that's where the, the trouble could be. Um, but with, with breath holds in particular, so there it's, it's a balance of, so the, the breath hold itself, as, as you know, from the studies, it's been shown to 
basically trans transport glucose into the tissues, into the muscles without the need of insulin. So it's kind of found another pathway similar to exercise where the uh, contraction can, can help lower blood glucose with uh, re ind independent of insulin. So that's how the blood sugar lowering effect can occur. But you have to balance the sympathetic. So when you're holding your breath and doing hypercapnic hypoxia, so when you're doing these stronger breath holds, it will induce a sympathetic response because it's it's not easy, <laughs> as we know, and that's that's kind of the benefit of it is that it's not easy and it's it's a short term stressor. But so but that can trigger the release of stress hormones, which will act to reduce insulin sensitivity and will also reduce uh, the body's endogenous production of glucose, which can increase blood sugar. So it's kind of a balance. So some people like I've noticed sometimes I might my blood sugar might drop sometimes it doesn't and it's just kind of a it's sad it's 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 disappointing to someone who's interested in like understanding the, the mechanisms of it and the science behind it because the body's so interesting in that every time can be slightly different can't reproduce it each time there's no difference the human body is so complex really yeah um, so so it's not that I know this time it's going to get me low or this time it's not. So it's really hard to know exactly what it's, how each time is going to be. And so that's where just being on top of it, checking your blood sugars, monitoring yourself. A lot of people wear continuous glucose monitors now. So that gives them instant feedback. Even if they don't feel the low, they'll be able, they'll be able to see it and they can adjust quickly having snacks nearby. You know, mm -hmm. I always carry a thing of, I have them in my pocket now, glucose tablets. It's kind of my, safety reserve so that no matter where I'm at, I can, yeah. I have sugar access. So, um, for diabetics, there's, you, you can never be too cautious. So it's always better to say, just don't worry about the breath holds, focus on slow breathing. Yeah. But if you're interested, you have to just take all the precautions you would take for anything. I go surfing. I have to take a lot of precautions for surfing. If I go on a hike, I have to take a lot of precautions for going on a hike. So, most people with type one diabetes in particular are very familiar with planning with anticipating the worst case scenario where you don't have your supplies for three hours or this long, what are you going to do? And so it's really taking those same, that same mindset you have toward normal activities like going kayaking or surfing or on a, to the beach and applying those to your breathing practice. And it sounds a little crazy, but just to be safe, make sure you're prepared and, and don't, there's no, there's, mm -hmm. it's one thing I really appreciate about how you teach this is that we should never be making it worse. You should never be feeling worse. So if, if yeah. it's stressing you out, if the breath holds are too much, then that's not worth it at probably at that point, you should gradually build into it. And so um, just be, per, take precautions. And then if, if it feels like it's too much, don't worry about it because that's yeah. the breath holds are the icing on the cake. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can get the slow breathing and, and, that, that's really where you're going to get the most benefits with sleep yeah. and, and a parasympathetic response. Because I suppose, Nick, as well, with there's some, some significant relationship between lung function and diabetes. And even when we were looking through some of the papers, that there was a deterioration of lung function for up to two and three years, even before the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So reduced lung function and poorer breathing um, seems to be an issue with diabetes and as a result then their breathing can be faster in upper chest so they they may find it more difficult to do any sort of breath holding so that's another aspect is that you don't want the person holding their breath for too long that they lose control of their breathing that's going to feed into their symptoms again 
The bold score could be useful here, especially to get an indicator of whether the person is breathing functionally or not. And, um, you know, in terms of, I, I would intuitively expect people with diabetes to have a reduced breath hold time. Now that may not always be the case because we see it with people with anxiety. Some definitely have a lower breath hold time, but some have a fairly high breath hold time. Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you see any correlation there in terms of, you know, the breath hold time? Could it be, could it give any um, helpful feedback to people with diabetic diabetes or is it just something to be avoided altogether, the bold score for diabetes? I don't think it would be avoided altogether. Um, I think that it could be a complement to something like testing your, for us, for diabetes, you know, it's always test your blood sugar. That's the first mm -hmm. measurement of where you're at. But of course, we know all the, all of the studies showing the, the usefulness of breath hold time for just an indicator of respiratory health. Mm -hmm. And so you might notice, for example, if you were to take your Bolt score and it was really low, it might be, uh, you wouldn't not test your blood sugar, but you might know, oh, something's up with my blood sugar. And when I go to test, because either way you were going to test, it might be something where you see a correlation between low blood sugar and low bolt score or high yeah. blood sugar and low bolt score, because both of those are going to affect just your, your mental alertness and just kind of how you, and, and that has a big, and although the bolt score in particular doesn't have a mental component as much, because it's just that first reflex, it's mm. still there's, there's stuff going on psychologically when your blood sugar is high and low that is just going to make even pinching your nose feel. You'll just be like, okay, yeah. you know, so there's a lot of uh, really interesting uh, emotional aspects of diabetes that might play a role. But I would say that the, I think it would be interesting. I've never done it myself, but mm. looking at bolt and blood sugar, because just because of how the, how your blood sugars make you feel, if there would be a correlation with the physiology of, of what that's doing to immediately to your bolt score. And since the bolt score is kind of immediate indicator of your current physiology, it would be, uh, that would be an interesting thing to, to consider with if someone's a diabetic and interested in this is like yeah. looking at when they test, say they're 200 and then they take their bolt score um, and, and they're, it's really low. They might say, Oh, and then two hours later, their blood sugars come down and it's 100 and then they take their bolt score and it's a little bit higher there might be an immediate physiological feedback there going on where the stress of the high blood sugar is reducing chemosensitivity, uh, yeah, reducing chemosensitivity and things like that. So, um, or, so, yeah, increasing so that, chemo, in or in increasing chemosensitivity. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, sometimes um, I get it mixed up too. So <laughs> don't worry about that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the baroreflex sensitivity and chemosensitivity. Yeah, the reverse. Reverse those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I absolutely find it fascinating. And I find it fascinating that, you know, Brett can, can help people with diabetes. And it's just a little bit unfortunate that as a diabetic, were you ever told to breathe through your nose? And this is not, I just want to kind of find out, is there any awareness out there? Are there hospitals encouraging people with diabetes to both type one and type two to slow down their breathing, to strengthen the, the autonomic nervous system and to get a better balance. Like for me, it makes sense. You know, if a condition is causing a lot of stress to the body, why don't we give a breathing technique that will help to balance that and activate the body's relaxation response? And even just for mental health, you know, because stress makes people sick. 
And really we should be, you know, focusing on how can we bring the body into relaxation by slowing down breathing? Is it happening in any hospitals? Are you aware of, um, you know, I know Bernardi has absolutely, you know, he's been a pioneer with this and has it caught on because his, his research is out there for 20 years. Do diabetics know about this? Do, do diabetic foundations encourage their members breathing through the nose and functional breathing? Not that I'm aware of, but that's why I have my website. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, but that, was, that was the big thing is that um, when I found this, it was like, how is this not known? It, it's mm. so simple. You know, I had kind of this, like, it was felt like a, what is going on? You know, I, it's in nature. It's, this is real peer reviewed science. It's not some woo woo, yeah. just breathe and feel great. It's like, this is really, like you said, it's balancing the autonomic nervous system. It's stimulating the vagus nerve. It's increasing all these really great measures of, of parasympathetic tone. And so why are we not doing this? But there, there's so much with diabetes that I, I don't have any, I, I understand why. So when, when I got diabetes, I didn't want to think about diabetes. I just, yeah. what do I have to do? What's the minimum requirement? I want to live my life. Yes. Um, I think it's when you get a little older and you realize, you know, I'm going to have some really long-term complications if I don't start managing this correctly, that you, you are actually interested in things like this. Now, if I was told when I was a kid, when I was 11 yeah. or 12, like, hey, maybe try breathing through your nose, maybe it would have been a habit that just stuck with me from there on out. So, you know, there probably are some opportunities there, but I, 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 I do understand that diabetes, there's so many aspects of it with nutrition and insulin dosages and blood sugars mm -hmm. and for so a kid. Things, yeah. yeah, there's so, so it's like, I, it's a hard balance, but I do think that it's starting to get out there. I think that, mm. um, people like yourself and James Nestor's book, he mentioned type one diabetes a couple times. And so I think that this idea of breathing as just a way, if anything, just the stress aspect of it. And then the mm. correlation between stress and diabetes, which is, you know, through the roof, hopefully that gives an alleyway into the other aspects of how slow breathing can help with managing mm. diabetes. Mm. But I don't know that it's a, it's not mainstream or anything. I don't think any, um, yeah, any, it hasn't happened. I've talked with a, a few diabetologists that um, say, you know, I found your site and now I tell my patients to at least consider it. And so mm. I think there are people thinking about it and I don't think anyone would be objective to, or would object to it. It's so simple. I don't think anyone would say, no, it's a bad idea. I just think yeah. that there's so many other things they're focused on. Yeah getting in yes. the weeds of the science of the insulin response and this, yeah. whereas if you just step back and say, how are you breathing? That might be a really good starting point. Sleep apnea and sleep disorder breathing, including snoring seems to be more common in diabetes than the normal population. And we spoke about this earlier on. This is going to stress the body on top of stress already that's contributed by the condition. It really makes sense as well to apply functional breathing to help with sleep disorder breathing. And at the very start, you said that what you, when you got your mouth closed at night, it was one of the best things that you felt. You weren't sure was it real or not. Do you, do you know why people with diabetes, not that you know why, but do you have any ideas? Why do people with diabetes have an increased risk of sleep disorder breathing? Is it just because they have poorer breathing patterns anyway? We spoke about reduced lung volume or reduced lung function which in turn then can, can contribute to greater collapse of the upper airways. Mm -hmm. 
So it's almost that everything is interlinked here. You know, you've got diabetes having poor respiratory health. Poor respiratory health is impacting sleep. Sleep in turn, sleep disorder breathing is stressing the body, which in turn is going to reduce the, the pancreas. Well, certainly in type two, releasing insulin and that stress response. Do you, do you have any thoughts on why diabetics are more prone to sleep disorder breathing? The, I don't, so I know that there's a huge association with it. So I know that they've, um, I do have a paper on my to read list that's basically saying there's a, a two way interaction between obstructive sleep apnea and type two diabetes, that the kind of the mechanisms behind both of them are similar and that one can kind of exacerbate the other. So it's this kind of feedback loop. And then in type one diabetes, I think it's like 40% incidence of of sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea um, in, in like which, one. Which is high. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, really certainly, high. Certainly in the normal population, in the male population, it could be as high as 40% in people aged between 50 and 70 years of age. But in yeah. the younger cohort, 40% would, would be way too high. Much. Yeah. And so, yeah, and that's the thing is, there's there's limited studies on these correlations and, and calculating these percentages, but we do know that um, another thing is that the parasympathetic tone isn't quite as high at night. So we don't get that shift to that calming uh, relaxation mode because of the stress of our blood sugars. And also a big thing that um, it's it's hard to measure because it's, it's different every night is that diabetics wake up a lot for their blood sugars. So um, if, if you wake up low, just last night, I woke up low. Um, I didn't measure something right. And I woke up and there I was low and I had to, I had to eat a little bit of glucose. So that's going to make it harder to fall back asleep. Plus the stress response of the low puts you in a sympathetic state. And so there's so many aspects of diabetes that, that decrease sleep. Now with sleep disorder breathing in particular, I think you just kind of you kind of nailed some of the mechanisms that are probably there. Now, I don't know the, the exact science behind it, but I would say that all of these things are combining the, mm. the increased sympathetic response, the poor lung health, they're all coming together. And, and if you're breathing through your mouth at night, that's only going to exacerbate things even farther. Mm. Um, as, as we know, mouth breathing at night can increase the incidence of sleep apnea, of, of snoring and all of these things. So I think there's a, a really uh, bad feedback loop here um, that can, make sleep really poor in diabetics. And that's why taping at night, if it does anything, even if I still wake up low, like I did last night, the sleep I did get was much deeper. I feel, I still feel more energized than I ever did when I was mouth breathing at night. And would you be, I'm just gonna share a screen because I think it's important to, this was an article, Nick, that you're probably aware of this. Um, this was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine about three oh, weeks yeah. ago and I'm a co-author here along with two ear, nose and throat doctors, Carlos O'Connor and Dr. Plaza. And we looked at the application of breathing re-education. These are the exercise from the oxygen advantage, part of it from the Buteyko method to the phenotypes of sleep apnea. And it's a 10,000 word article that's available for free. And when we're looking at functional breathing patterns, we're looking at it from the three different dimensions, the breathe light, breathe low and breathe slow. But Again, you know, this is a field that has quite good potential and nasal breathing is absolutely key for people with obstructive sleep apnea. And I tape my mouth at night and I know some people are going to say and doctors will say don't tape them out at night. I want, I would like to demonstrate just my own tape and I'm going to ask you as well. 
would you perceive any additional factors that people with diabetes have to be careful with that if they tape their mouth at night um, are there other aspects that they have to be really, you know, you're talking about fluctuations on blood sugar, for example. Um, so I just put a demonstration and if you can answer that question, are there other things that people with diabetes need to be more careful with in terms of getting them out closed during sleep? The only thing that comes to mind immediately is that if you have a hard time feeling your hypoglycemia, so if you don't detect when your blood sugar is low, yeah. and you're getting into much deeper sleep, I guess there could be a potential that you wouldn't feel it when you woke, you wouldn't wake up. So low blood sugar typically wakes people up pretty easily. And it, it induces a, a pretty good stress response. Like, Hey, we need sugar. Your brain needs sugar. It's going to wake you up. Uh, once your blood sugar drops below, let's say 70, um, I think it's milligrams per deciliter. Um, cause people measure it in different ways, but, um, so I think that would be the biggest concern would be if, if you are sleeping too deeply, which sounds kind of yes. counterintuitive, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other one is if putting the tape on really stresses you out. Um, so if yes. then you don't want any added stress. So if yeah. the thought of taping makes you more stressed and it's going to make your sleep worse, then at that yeah. point, it's not worth it. Um, so I think those would be the two big ones off the top of my head. Now, there might be someone, a doctor that might point out things I'm, you know, that I'm not sure, sure of, of course. but um, it seems like it's worth trying if it doesn't scare yeah. you. Yeah. So I'll just do a demonstration of the tape because I think it can be a factor that people are definitely put off by and that's fine. This is a tape that we use. It's myo tape and it's a tape that we actually brought out for children. And myo tape is because of the myofunctional therapy and the application for dentistry. So it's, it's a cotton based tape. I think you're familiar with this, Nick, are you? Mm -hmm. You've come across it. Mm -hmm. and we stretch it by we give it a, a quite a, a tension you know even almost to its limit maybe not quite and that's the tape there so there's an elastic tension there you see that it's patting my lips but in terms of perceived lip risk this is bringing the lips together but if the person needs to mouth breathe they can mouth breathe so it's not that we're blocking the, the mouth and it's also what we're doing is looking to improve strengthen the the tone of the orbicularis oris muscle here because the tension is going in a bi-directional relationship to help activate that muscle and to change that habit so for somebody who might be apprehensive about wearing tape to realize that there is a way to tape without covering them out and it is my own product so i'll say it out front there but it's relatively inexpensive it's 25 dollars for three months supply and if it helps you to get a better night's sleep and i've been taping my mouth for 20 years for me as a, somebody with asthma and somebody with sleep disorder breathing it was a game changer and i really would say this you know i think sleep should be the foundation in many instances of many different conditions because if we're not getting that quality deep sleep the body doesn't really have that chance of recovery or at least to the same degree because if the sleep is in a state that we're having apneas or we're having hypopneas or we're having heavy snoring, it's increasing sympathetic drive. It's putting the body into that stress response. And of course, our day is going to be then we have difficulty concentrating and focusing and being productive. And that feeds back into stress. And then the implications that stress have on a condition such as 
type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So in terms of a final couple of sentences, would you see the application of slow breathing and nose breathing and breathing light and breathing low in terms of the breathing application for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Yeah, it seems like, uh, and that's what the studies have shown. I see a mix of type 1, type 2. And although, like we said at the beginning, the way they, their, their onset is much different, the outcome is are, are very or are similar in that you get a lot of the same complications. And so the autonomic dysfunction and things like this, that slow breathing can really help with almost immediately. And then some of the disturbances and blood gases and things like that, that nose breathing can help with um, and help with circulation and stuff like that. So I think that it's the applications are going to be for both types. Um, the results might be slightly different on which type, because if, if you're a type two, you still do have the potential to produce insulin or you still are creating some insulin. And so by stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system, you might increase your insulin production or you might improve your insulin sensitivity. And that might help with your, your glucose control more, but the, for like the complication side of it, it seems like slow breathing is a, is a no brainer for things like improving autonomic function, which is the big one with, with type one diabetes and, and reducing stress, um, which is another big one with, with both types of diabetes. So it seems like a, yeah, it's a really such an easy application for both types and that could really have some profound benefits. Yeah, and there's benefits even that go beyond as well diabetes because in terms of reducing racing mind, improving sleep, just feeling better overall, as opposed mm -hmm. to as human beings, we're very often stuck in our head, you know, so there's, there's added benefits there. Nick, if people are to find a little bit more about you, um, what's your website again? Yeah, so I have thebreathingdiabetic.com and I have a lot of the information we've talked about today and lots of different stuff about breathing and diabetes on there. Um, we also, if for Oxygen Advantage fans, uh, my wife has a, a yoga studio called Black Sand Yoga, and we have a class that we combine Oxygen Advantage and yoga. And so there's breath holds. And um, that's one thing I find really nice if I want to do some breath holds. That's a, they're short and they're easy. So it's, it's less uh, sympathetic response. Um, and then I'm on Instagram and things like that. But uh, mm -hmm. I don't try, I try not to look at those too much. So mainly thebreathingdiabetic.com. And I, and I love email. So if you email me from there, I'll, I'll reply. What's your email address? Uh, it's nick at thebreathingdiabetic.com. Okay, great. And as well, I have a new book, and I know this is a blatant plug, but it's called The Breathing, the Breathing Cure. Um, we did put a chapter on diabetes because we felt it was very important. And it was after talking with Nick maybe five years ago or four years ago when we first were in touch. I'm not sure if it's gone back that far, but certainly going back a few years and we included Nick's story and we looked at the science and the papers. Um, I really feel this is something that could be helpful for people with, with diabetes. Of course, you have to you know, um, proceed with, with some caution because of the fluctuations in blood sugar levels. And as Nick said at the very, very start, Nick, and I'll put it back to you, for somebody who's just starting off, what would be the first couple of things that you would encourage them to do? Yeah, first is and foremost, just switch to nose breathing uh, throughout the day. And then if you can at night, that's the big one. And then try some slow breathing exercises, get an app on your phone, um, 
make it as easy as you can in yourself. Just do a minute or two minutes. Just do something to, to feel it so you can see how quickly you can shift to these relaxation response and then maybe increase it. But yeah, nose breathing and slow breathing are the two most important things I think uh, we can do. Great. Well, Nick, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot, Patrick.